Welcome to Dominating Your Investments, a podcast where you will learn about stocks, personal finance, and creating generational wealth. I'm your host, Dom Rinaldi. Welcome back to Dominating Your Investments. I'm Dom Rinaldi, and I have a special guest today, guys. I have Felix uh, from YouTube, Felix and Friends. I'm sure you've seen his videos, uh, especially for all my Palantir fans. I know you're watching his channel. So we're going to talk in it's the morning where he's at in Hong Kong and it's evening here in Nashville, Tennessee. And we're going to talk about just stocks in general ad hoc. And we're going to start with Palantir. So I'll let Felix here introduce himself and let's talk Palantir and kind of what we've seen lately in the news. Brilliant, Dominic. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure and delight to be uh, on your your podcast. I've, we've had a bit of a chat over the last few weeks and months on, on Twitter, and I always enjoy your content. I love your podcast. So thanks for all the financial education you, you, you do. Thanks for enlightening people and getting people to be better investors, which is really what this is all about. If you don't know anything about me, I I have a YouTube channel called Felix and Friends. We have a, also an educational academy where we provide tons of free education. Uh, Goat Academy, it's called goatacademy.org. A little bit about me just in 30 seconds. I, my sort of business life started in the dot-com boom where I saw a crash and burn and what that looked like. And then I studied economics. I was a corporate lawyer. I worked at an investment bank for a little while in hedge fund strategy. And for the last 15 years or so, I've just run my own businesses and, and invested my, my own money. So that's a little bit about me. Yeah, super excited to talk about Palantir. We do it a lot. I think it's a very exciting, very interesting space. So uh, fire away, Dominic. Excellent, excellent. So I've seen all through over uh, FinTwit this past week. I've been asking questions as well. I, I did add to my position last week. We, we dropped all the way down to 2150. I bought shares at 2250, I bought shares at 2150, just DCA DCA all the way down. Can we go further down? And based off the technicals, it looks interesting, right? We know that CARP's final shares should be all sold off for the time being by December 3rd, but there's still some more shares to go along with some of the other executives. So what is your take just on the price action from you know, now until till that time frame or even the end of the year. Sure. Thanks, Dominic. I mean, if you look at the, the chart, and I do quite a lot of technical analysis because I'm also a pretty active options trader, so you can't really help but looking at the charts. Uh, they're really the only support levels we properly have is essentially $21. That's sort of uh, around about $21. Uh, that's our kind of July dip. And if you look at the chart, it does sort of zigzag. And that's just, I think, the nature of a growth stock like this. People get excited about it. People take some profits. Institutions sell against us and and, and so on. And we see a lot of that dark pool action. When the stock goes above $25, institutions seem to sell out of it, and at least in the short term. And that is kind of why this thing is going to zigzag for some time. So I always think, you know, the most frequent question I always get is like, what's the end of the year price target, Felix? And I always think, forget about it. Just completely ignore it. It makes no difference. If you buy a company like this and you don't have at least, I'd say, a five-year time horizon where you can hold this money, hold this stock, and ideally add to it. Ideally, I would say with any stock that you've done your research on, I would add a little bit to it every single month because that will get rid of the mispricing that you've done. So if you bought it too high, you bought it too low, if you could ever do that, it'll just average you out. So I think the real impact of the share-based compensation thing is it's decreasing, right? So Carp's got one more big pile to, to, to sell this year. That doesn't mean it's going to stop. This is continuing until 2030, right? This is their, this the stock options plan. So they've got quite a bit of shares to sell. There will be a real impact of this towards 2029, 2020, and 2030, because that's when they expire. That's where they're going to have to really get rid of some, some stock there at that time. However, as a percentage of revenue, the numbers are going to get much better just because the IPO is out of the picture now and in, in terms of you know it's, it's a year, year back and revenues are also growing. So the investors who are put off by you know, 60% 
sales, 30% of revenue dilution and those kind of numbers. Those numbers will start to look better. And I think that will work in, in Palantir's favor. But it also isn't really scaring institutions that much because this was all published in the IPO papers. You know, it was in the S1. It wasn't a secret. It's just those investors who didn't read the S1, which of course is most, <laughs> uh, were, were surprised when, when this hit hit us. But you'd think that an institution who bought this would have an analyst who would at least read that. I mean, okay, maybe my assumption here is a big one, but they know. And therefore, this isn't really the big reason why they are or aren't buying or, 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 or buying and selling Palantir in the short term. So I think really my, my, my one takeaway from this is always think a little longer term. No, I'm right there with you. And I plan on holding this for, for 10 plus years. Hopefully it's a stock I give to my kids down the road. I truly believe this will be a, a trillion dollar market cap stock. Don't have a price target of when that's going to happen. I could care less because I'm a long-term holder, but I do like to get my discounts when I can. And I did have some funds that that unlocked recently. So uh, I wanted to, to pile in a big, big amount if we're, if we're going to get into the teens. But you are right with, with dollar cost averaging. And, and I've been uh, adding throughout to, to lower my cost basis because it is higher than 21. But this company is phenomenal, right? It, it is so... It's so different than any other software I've seen out there in taking structured and unstructured data and putting it in one platform that can actually be manipulated and, and, and structured in a way where I could work in accounting and I don't know anything about coding or anything. And through a no-code GUI, I can actually get decisions made that impact the business in a very timely and efficient manner. And then I can share that data and those results through other people in the organization to then make a trickle-down effect of this flywheel effect in our business that with more people using the product and seeing access to the data and having the ability to hypothesize through digital twins in what-if scenarios to make sure we're making... <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> if, if you're not watching, uh, we just saw one of Felix's cats. I love it. If you can hear that racket, sorry about that. She's uh, just jumped on my lap. It's uh, <laughs> a cutie. Um, uh, sorry, Dom. No, 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 no. We're, do, we're doing this fully. Yeah, we, we just talked about this actually before. No edits, ad hoc. I love it. I have a fingerprint. Cats and all. Yes, cats and all. I have a fingerprint lock, so I don't think we'll see any of my uh, kids popping in here. But with this, you know, they have this competitive advantage that the product, the more you get involved with it within your organization, one, it's stickier, but more importantly, the alpha gets bigger. And you saw this through the example of Skywise and Airbus, where they started getting their contractors using it and suppliers. It became a point of Skywise now as an industry standard for airlines. And so yeah. I think we could truly see this in these 40 industries over time be separate products that are industry standards. What do you think? I think, Dominic, for me also, the, the attraction here is that this could be the operating system of industries. And there isn't really that one place where people can go to to fix their IT and data issues. And the way... Okay, the 90s, basically, everybody bought computers, right? All, comp all companies in the world got everybody onto servers, hooked everybody up. The last 10, 15 years, everybody created lots of data. Everyone's tracking lots of things. Everyone's got lots of metrics and thousands of people trying to make sense of all the spreadsheets. We are now at a point where we're getting so much data just because everything has a chip in it. Everything is trackable that people can no longer cope with it. And I've, I've got guys in my community who work in the automotive industry or who work at Airbus and they're saying, look, my job is to make sense of the data. This is what I do all day long. I mean, I watch a demo from Palantir, like that uh, English one last week on, on AutoHype. They, they are kind of blown away by it. They're saying it's not, they're basically saying it's not like there isn't another software that can do something similar, but we have to use five different pieces of software to try and get this done. This does it in one place, in one go, which will make the outputs more coherent. It'll make it 
better just because it has access to everything. And I think that is the excitement with it that, okay, Airbus, for example, announced yesterday in the German press they're going to launch an air taxi, right? A Lilium competitor, essentially. So here you have now two Palantir customers building essentially the same product, competing. And the guy who is at Lilium came from Airbus, and he is the one who um, got Palantir Foundry running up in, from operations at Airbus. So you can see that the link here, the, the, the one thing they have in common is that they are essentially using the same tools to do something much smarter and much better. And, you know, you, you mentioned uh, Skywise. Most Boeing planes in the world are on the Skywise system. And, you know, that's bizarre, but it's because the airlines typically have half-half Airbus Boeing fleets and they are using Skywise because they are also Airbus clients. So I think what we are seeing is that as Palantir dives into more and more industries, their product gets so much better and faster to scale it up that I think we are sort of at the cusp of that growth, which is why it frustrates me when analysts say, hey, this is only going to grow 30%, maybe 20% or something. I just think, no, no, it's just getting easier. Each client makes it that much easier because the next airline, well, it's the same product. You can probably install it in 10 minutes, whereas the first time around, it took you three months. So I think for me, that's what you, you know, when you say flywheel, it's the challenge is the first customer in the industry. The second one, you apply the same thing, you make it better. The third one, you have a tremendous product. The fifth one, you know, your intern installs it in five minutes or it auto installs itself. Uh, so I think that's really where the advantage here comes is as they scale up, they are not only getting a lot more profits just because the cost of deploying software is very, very low, which is why I like software companies. I mean, I like I love Microsoft because it's got ma beautiful margins because it doesn't cost them anything for me to use Office, right? It doesn't. I just get an extra subscription fee here. No, I, I, I am right there with you in most of my portfolio. I want to say like, 75% of it's in tech. Obviously, for my listeners, they know I work for VMware. I work for a technology, a competitor, competitor slash partner to Microsoft. And, and so to your point on the fact you don't need to use so many different products, you, know, you think about some of the products that are out there that do certain functions of Foundry and Gotham. You look at the Apollo Edge and you look at the native updates that Apollo is able to do, kind of similar to the liquid updates that JFrog does. You look at the unstructured data and bringing things together. You look at MongoDB. You know, there's all these different things to your point, and they don't all talk to each other the same way. They weren't designed to be on the same platform. There's also vulnerabilities that happen because I work in cybersecurity for VMware. And, you know, the more vendors you put involved in your environment, the more vulnerabilities you've just opened up, right? And then you have vendors pointing each other at each other on whose reason for the data breach. So this is one single platform. They've also, you know, taking it back that they got the hardest customer up front. They got the government and all the three-letter agencies, right? And to keep those... You have to be really good at what you're doing to have them for 17 years to expand and, and then get other governments in other parts that are allies of the Western hemisphere of, of the U.S. to also jump on board and using the software. So to your point of it's just starting in the commercial segment. And we had this conversation offline about investors in 2020 are so New investors in 2020 have very high expectations, unrealistic expectations of what really the stock market is and what company growth is. So when a company says we're going to grow five years for the next five years at over 30%, first off, most companies don't make those kind of predictions. That is very damaging if you can't deliver on that. But they have done that and they're doubling their free cash flows. And, and so they're doing a lot of things that most companies don't do, and they're executing to what they say they're going to do. And I think that's, that's something to pay attention to as time goes on. I totally agree with you there. I think the, the one bit that really got me excited about in the last earnings call was when they said, 
our free cash flow is up, I think it was 50% or something up uh, over expectations. And I was like, whoa, that really makes a difference. And I thought, well, all the analysts, uh, I, I, you know, I know how a free cash discounted cash flow model works. That would kind of force you to increase your price targets. And lo and behold, people did, but they moved it up a dollar. So they obviously squeezed something else down to keep their numbers down. Uh, I, I think... There is something strange about Palantir in terms of reputation and, and, and sort of the the marketing challenge that they have. There, there are a lot of people out there for various reasons dislike companies that are closely associated to U.S. law enforcement or intelligence agencies or, you know, those who operate the drones and occasionally kill the wrong people. I mean, that's all part of that. So is that the fault of the software? Probably not. I think that comes back to politics and who you vote to make those decisions and who you put in power for those giving them the best tools to me is not really a political decision but i appreciate a lot of people don't like it for that reason i think that's a big thing and if you think about you know wall street is in new york right it's a fairly liberal space and i think there are quite a lot of people who simply don't want to have the protesters outside of the front door and therefore they stay away from that i think that's one part of here and also Wall Street is very, very bad at recognizing technological edge. They have not had a great history in that. In fact, retail investors are typically better at it, because, especially if we can use the software. Now, the challenge with Palantir is that very few people are using the software. You know, it's a couple of hundred companies in the world, and within those, say, a couple of thousand people who actually have first-hand experience. Whereas if you are Tesla, at some point, you have so many cars on the road that everybody has a neighbor with one. Everybody knows somebody who's driven one. So I think that's one of the real marketing challenges is how do you get to a brand point of view where you are known for what you do rather than known for your sort of, you know, scandals or what people don't like about it. I think that's really the, the big challenge for them there. And I think that's going to take a lot of time. I think it really will especially since many companies are using Palantir, but they're not necessarily promoting that. I mean, I did a video a while back on why I believe BMW, the German car maker, is using Foundry. And there are many, I mean, there are quotes from the CEO which are basically describing the software he uses, and it's exactly what Palantir is. They have employed people who worked the previous two or three years at Palantir and are now working in data something or other in, in BMW and so on. But they're never going to put it out. They're never going to say we use Palantir because there is a portion of the of the population who say, oh, that's what the spooks use. That's the scary stuff. They're going to spy on you without any comprehension of the system. So I think that's the part of the challenge that they really face to move the stock uh, much further upwards. I don't know what your, your thoughts are on, on the on the sort of brand positioning here. No, you hit on a lot of good points there. And one point that I haven't really reflected on, so you just said it, was that, yeah, everyone knows someone who has a Tesla. I got to see one of my buddies brag about how his car could roll up and drive and pick us up right there without anybody in there. And I got to see it firsthand and was blown away. And I got to sit in my uh, brother-in-law's Tesla and and get in ludicrous mode and go zero to 60 and feel my stomach jump up like a, a roller coaster. But there's only, I think what now, we're close to, I think, 203 enterprises that use Palantir in general. And not all of them even want to be named, as, as you pointed out, because not only dealing with the negative press that they may see, but also their competitive advantage goes away if their competitors know that they're getting that advantage through, through Foundry. So there, there's a lot of things we can hit on. I, I mean, I'd say let's just keep going. I, I know that uh, on FinTwit, I, I got asked why I'm not doing enough talking about Palantir. I thought I was doing too much. So there's some other topics I want to cover that happened this week. One of them being the Big Bear Partnership. So I don't know if you saw the episode on pounding the table where one of one of the guys, Riley, he, he find he's a young twenty-one year old investor and he he's really good at I, finding I did a video with him. I, I basically That's right, that's right. You just did a video with him. I haven't I'll be honest, I have not seen it he's yet. An incredible I fountain of knowledge on this. Yes, yes. He has been really doing well at finding these new to market companies 
that that are right out the gate undervalued and getting in and investing there. He does a lot more trading. As my listeners know, I'm a long-term investor, but I think you can learn something from everybody in investing and, and take away knowledge from even traders and, and even if that's not what you do. And uh, we had an episode where we, we, we were, one, we did an episode on their podcast and then we did a FinTwit, a Spaces, Twitter Spaces episode of Big Bear versus Palantir. Who's going to be the winner? Who's a better company? And I said, you know, eventually if they're going to be a competitor enough, Palantir has the cash to just go buy them, right? I did not think for a second they were going to partner right out the gate because they do do very similar business, right? Especially with their three different products, it's very similar to Gotham. They have government contracts. They have people who worked on the DOD. They have a leadership team that's been very heavily involved and very well connected in the government, but they really didn't have a lot of commercial growth and and presence and that's where foundry has been growing now you know this past quarter over 100 percent growth on their commercial customers um year over year and so i just thought it was interesting that they were willing to partner and it shows the strength of palantir the fact that they would rather partner and that way they get their foot into more government agencies and also can really show strength that they complement each other and that they can maybe gain some things from what Big Bear was doing. So I th- I didn't think that it was, it was confusing for a lot of people, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on it and what you and Riley talked about. Yeah, I was, when I saw, first saw it, I thought, oh, this is just another one of those partnerships, another like a smaller SAP or Accenture or any of those. I mean, Palantir has tons of partners, which are essentially a free sales funnel, right? It's like getting a consultancy to like resell your product, which is a smart move. It costs you very little. And a lot of software in the world is sold by consultancies. I mean, really a huge proportion of the business. So therefore I thought, okay, it's just one of those. And then it was Riley's tweets. He like tweeted like 18 tweets in a row or something, breaking it down into each bit. And I was like, whoa, that's really quite interesting. And they are kind of competitors, as you say, uh, Big Bear, the whole management team uh, has either a sort of military or a kind of intelligence background, Correct. which is obviously different to, to Palantir. So you can therefore see that their links into the, the Washington power players is, are, are going to be very, very good just because they have really, really senior people running the business. They didn't just hire them as a sales guy. They're the people who, are, who, are, who set up the business. Uh, so they have good government contracts. So my first thought was like, I almost wonder if maybe Department of Defense or someone like that nudged him and said, guys, can you come up with this together? Because this is great and that's great, but it would be better together. I almost wonder if there's a bit of that going on there. And if you look, I think, at the greatest companies out there, they are not afraid of collaboration. Collaboration generally make you stronger. If you have a good product and you know what you're doing, then working with somebody who's competitor-ish could actually make you get a much, much better product out. I mean, look at Tesla, for example, right? Who did they buy a lot of their equipment from when they built their Chinese plant? From NIO, because NIO was having financial trouble at the time. And, you know, when NIO hits a certain milestone of delivery, uh, Tesla's Elon congratulates them on that feat. And you have a lot of that cooperation that goes on in industries in the sort of background. It's just we often don't see it publicly. But I think Big Bear is a much smaller player. They could have totally bought them. I mean, the market cap isn't that high. But if they did, I think they might smother it. And I think that's kind of what they're probably thinking is most M&A fails because the small little startup outfit has that special culture. It's a reason people like being there because it's unique. You move that into a bigger beast, and at this point, Palantir already is a bigger beast. You often kill it. I mean, Microsoft is a great example, right? They buy a lot of great businesses, and they typically, they don't kill them, but they sort of bring them up to the Microsoft just good enough standard, but we have an incredible sales network, so we'll push it, and it'll do well. I mean, look at LinkedIn, for example. They haven't done anything really with LinkedIn. They probably never will. Or Skype, right? You know, they've not really 
pushed the boundaries. Whereas I think if it was the original teams, they would have changed those products. But when you get into the bigger companies, people become more conservative. There are more management levels. There are more layers that kind of interfere with innovation. So I think that's kind of what they were probably thinking is like, let's just leave it there. And we can always take a smaller equity stake into it if we want to. And that seems to be the way they like to do it. So I think it's a smart move. I think it'll get Palantir probably more government business, strangely enough, as the sort of joint venture. And... Big Bear has a basically big brother that gives them a lot of backbone. It helps them get all the data together faster and it'll probably get them some commercial clients, which is a space they've never been in. And when you show up with three or four guys from the military and you try to sell commercial products, it's fairly hard, as we've seen with Palantir. So I think it's a win-win for everybody and very, very little risk, very, very little downside because Palantir still has the same great product they had before. I don't think Big Bear will learn suddenly a secret because they already know how Palantir works because the government is already using both pieces of software together. So they'll already have integrations and already have that overlap. So their technical people will be fairly aware of what the others are doing. So I, I, I like these corporations. I think it's, an, it's a low-risk way of creating synergies and creating growth without the the risk overhang of spending billions of dollars on, on an M&A and, 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 you know, corporate investors, bankers, really. I really like what you said there about mergers and acquisitions, because that is something that I think a lot of new investors, even seasoned investors sometimes don't focus on in that you get excited when you think about these like crazy M&A deals. But what happens is exactly what you said. They smother the culture. Typically, the founder-led leaders leave, right? We saw that with Lavongo when TDOC bought Lavongo. A lot of other people thought Lavongo should have bought them. And so I'm still long TDOC, by the way. I, I do think that will be a great stock. And I have not sold a share. I've only added. It's actually at a great price point right now, at 119 there's something to be said about the, and I've worked for startups and, and and that culture and that ability to make fast decisions, go to market, product development decisions. And so with what Palantir has done with these 20, I think it's 20 even now, SPAC investments, the most recent one, which we'll talk about here in a second of, of the Birds company that just went public, they are making these companies go to market more effectively, faster, making their businesses more cost-effective and, and operationally excellent with using Foundry as the product of choice to build their company and the operating system, per se, of the organization. And so instead of buying Sarcos Robotics or buying Babylon Health, they are enabling those companies through their software and helping them solve problems that they would have had to figure out to solve in a much longer time frame, spending more money, more products, more manpower to make these decisions to be more profitable and ultimately get alpha, right? I mean, at the end of the day, mm. what we're buying when you're an enterprise or a consumer in technology you're buying time to value. You're buying time to value to beat your competition to the punch. You're buying time to value on getting a new product out, uh, more efficiency in OPEX or CAPEX. It's all coming down to time to value to have alpha. And so it really is interesting that they're starting to have this kind of soft bank-esque feel to them that not only are they getting customers, they don't have to buy all their customers, but they're also enabling investments that they're putting shares in that ultimately could blossom because their software is going to make them have a competitive edge. What do you think? Totally. I think it's a really unique and I think a very smart thing. The challenge I think with Palantir about six months ago was how do you get this software into the real disruptors? I can see why, you know, a big billion dollar company might buy it because they can save $50 million on their supply chain or something like that by being better set up. But the real innovation doesn't typically come from Microsoft as much as I love the stock. I don't want to 
um, beat up Microsoft here. I think it's a fantastic stock. I've, I've tons of it, but they typically don't create the, the, the innovation. Smaller companies do, new growth startups do, who are not restricted by corporate culture, and they then eventually get gobbled up. That's usually what happens, or occasionally they develop into large companies themselves. So it's a very low-risk strategy, I think, by Palantir. And I think they gain, as you say, they gain two things. One, potentially the investment could balloon. They're becoming a, a venture capital or a private equity fund. And with sort of Peter Thiel in the background, you'd think they'd pretty, be pretty good at picking winners. Although there will be losers in there. I mean, typically in, in, in that space, you know, one company- Just like our own portfolios, right? So, so, there's going to be winners and losers exactly. in our own portfolio. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. But what I'm actually more excited about is not the return on that investment, but the insight they gain into these new disruptive industries. So say, I think flying things, whatever you want to call them, air taxis, drones, whatever, is a future industry. I think it's fairly obvious. If you can fly from, I don't know, Philly to New York for $100 in, in, in 40 minutes. I mean, who wouldn't do that? Why would you sit on a train, right, or drive? It'd be fairly moronic for most people. So therefore, that's an industry that's going to happen. Now, will it be Lilium or any of the other stocks out there, companies out there who are going to win that? Who knows? But by being the operating system of Lilium, we have a pretty good management team. They're going to give it a good stab they will learn how the industry works. They'll learn how that product works. They'll get an insight. They'll build software and applications around this new industry. So when in two years' time, Boeing wants to build one of these or you know whoever else, Palantir will have the software and they can say, look, the guys you are trying to compete against because they're disrupting your business, we basically built them. We know exactly what the system is. Do you want to use it? And what we are saying, actually, pre-call here, funnily enough, we're talking about Lilium. Uh, in the German press yesterday, there was an article that Airbus is going to build an air taxi. And, you know, so there you have two Palantir customers building the same product. So who wins? It's Palantir who wins from, from this, right? So I think that's really the, the, the true insight there is being able to understand very early on potential new industries before anybody else does so that when this becomes more mass market and everyone else in the industry is old, the dinosaurs trying to catch up with it, which is usually what happens, they'll be looking to a software solution and they won't be going to Microsoft because Microsoft won't have the experience or you know whoever else out there. So I think that's really the, the, the real kind of growth proofing of this business by, by chucking 10, 20 million at each of these companies and giving them you know, a very, very low cost license essentially to use the software. So it keeps, it prevents Palantir from becoming a dinosaur, I think, because it keeps them connected to disruptive small scale growth companies. And that will help to protect the, the, the culture. So that was me talking for far too long, but yeah, that's sort of- No, no, it's not far too long at all. I, I love when our guests elaborate and, and deep dive into, into these topics, especially Palantir, because I think- I know I love talking about it and our listeners love hearing about it. So let, let's take this a step further, right? To your point, I'm looking at my screen here. I pull up Mr. Ralphie Axelrod, at Ralphie Axelrod, one of the Palantir followers. He's got a great list on Twitter. That's right. I'm looking at it right here. And he has the total amounts invested in these SPACs of the 20 SPACs. And it totaled $406 million, 516000 to be exact. Their free cash flow projected for this year, 400 million. Interesting, just a coincidence, but interesting. So let's look at some of the in industries that they're in. When you talk about, these were not companies that they were investing in with Foundry for Builders and, and investing in SPACs that were legacy industries. So we'll go down the list here. So we'll look at cellularity. So we're talking about biotech and drug discovery and drug development. So that's an emerging field, right? We can agree to that for sure. Faraday future, EVs, okay? We know that EVs are going to be very prominent in our future. Astrocast with satellites. Black Sky, more satellites. We look at also to the 
underserved population for internet and mobility. Over 3 billion people in the world do not have internet connectivity and mobility yet, right? I think satellite technology solves that eventually, right? We got uh, Starlink with Tesla. So then we go to Lilium, Evatols, like what we were talking about earlier. Then we go to Roviant Sciences, another sciences, another uh, drug discovery. Sarcos Robotics, robotics as a service with these suits. I mean, it's unreal to make people in factories more efficient. We have AEVC. Now, I'm not familiar with that one. Are you familiar with that one? They did 30 million into AEVC. I haven't heard of that one. And then we had Birds just recently announced, which we'll talk about here in a little bit, for 20 million. We had Weijo, which is one of the ones that I'm most excited about who does the data for cars, both EVs and non-EVs for, for they have more data than Tesla does for, from an automobile perspective. So they did 35 million. Babylon Health, a health service focused on personalized health for customers and really trying to lower insurance costs and have a, a, this, this healthcare system in the world that we really want to be able to be more preventative than reactive. And a lot of the drug discovery is more on the reactive side opposed to preventative. Then we have Boxed, which is a really interesting one, which is like a wholesaler uh, of online e-commerce and and getting things like Costco online, basically think of that as Boxed. Then you have Paratherapeutics, another one in healthcare and therapies. Autonomous vehicle company, not named for 18 million. It's interesting. Fast Radius, which I believe also is pretty sure fast radius is also an ev one but i could be wrong i there, there's so many to keep track of adherent which is a company that does demand side platform programmatic advertising without cookies and is not affected by idfa they just had a good earnings and they did 15 million for them then they did energy vault and another EV charging company for 20 million. So they're definitely into renewable energy. Fin Acceleration, I'm not familiar with that one either. And then Tritium, which I believe also is on energy. So they're, they're, they're following these different emerging markets that to your point, will all of them be winners? No. Will the concepts and markets that they're investing in be relevant 10, 20 years from now? Most definitely. So it's interesting how they're focused on in these SPAC investments. It's SPAC investments in emerging markets that are not even like reached their product fit point yet. It it really is. And I I mean, I think a lot of these are worth digging into. don't necessarily need to invest in them i think but I, just if you dig into these a bit deeper there are some really interesting business in there actually the, the fast radios i remember looking at that a while back and that's it's cloud manufacturing so if you are a car manufacturer and you're missing a part you can upload the you know 3d rendering and the details of that part they will then find you the supplier they might 3d print it and they'll ship it to you so it's sort of taking the whole supply chain thing to a whole nother level. Uh, so because, I mean, we can all go on, you know, Alibaba or something and we can order components, but these are specific custom made just for you components. And you can, you can basically find a manufacturer like that without ever, ever, ever having to pick up a phone or pitching it. And, and they take the whole process. It's sort of production as a service. It's a really strange uh, business, but you can see that that would work very, very well for many, many industries. Uh, even if it's just for diversification uh, and risk management, they want to have a, an extra, you know, manufacturer on there if something's late or, or not delivering. So yeah, I, I think it's it's a very exciting little uh, almost Palantir ETF that they are compiling there, and very unusual to find that within a a company like, you know, call it a software company or whatever you wish to call Palantir. And I think, again, that makes it harder for analysts and a lot of investors to understand this because analysts like businesses that do one thing and they like them to do that one thing very well. When they start doing three things or five things or 10 things or 20 things, they're just like, this is, I, I don't really understand this. How do I model this? Because you need to think about the, the investment banking analyst. He's sitting there and he's used to modeling a car company, right? He can say, okay, you sell a million cars, 
your mar gross margin on that is 15%. I now know what that is. I then know what your overheads are, how many staff you have, what's your R&D spent. I know how much money you're gonna make and you're growing at 10% a year. I can put a value on that. And that's the way they think. They think in units and they like to multiply the units by margins and by how many units you're gonna sell in the future. Look at a business like Palantir, it becomes much more difficult because there's so many components and parts to it. And that's why people, analysts hated Amazon for a long time. They didn't understand the business. People, analysts hated Facebook for a long time because they said, you're not monetized. What are you doing? How will you ever make any money? Right? And, and there are a lot of these examples. They just don't get it. Tesla, they didn't like that Tesla was doing lots of things. If Tesla had stuck just to building an EV, the stock probably would have picked up earlier. But because Elon is who he is, he does loads of crazy things and analysts don't like it. So now he's turned the corner, obviously, but it's taken a long time. And I think people forget that. I think people forget how a lot of the greatest businesses were misunderstood or just by, you know, actually, okay, me, for example, I have a, my core portfolio. I only invest in stocks where I have good visibility. I've only just bought Amazon, which might sound strange to you, but why did I do that? Because I hated their retail business. It's got like 2% margins. It's a terrible business. I love their cloud business. I always thought if you split that, which they may or may not do, then I love that side of the business because again, that's very predictable. Lots of repeat cash flow. But by building Amazon as a retail platform, they gained, I don't know, however many hundreds of millions of customers, and they're now growing. The fastest part of the business that's growing is ad revenue because they've got lots of eyeballs on their website. They can make a lot of money out of that. So when you create these kind of multifaceted businesses, analysts or kind of long-term or traditional investors don't like it. And I think while we are excited about this, there is a flip side to that that wall street looks at this and goes this doesn't even fit into any industry categorization to me anymore what is this is this software as a service is this data processing what is this is this an investment vehicle what are we looking at here they own gold like you know we are just we're just out These some people, people still call them consultants still government consultants i saw that on a video the other day and they said palantir you could consider it a consulting company yes and you're like, hmm. and then they and then they do a metric against consulting companies, and you sort of think, yeah, that's just what what, what are you what are you even doing? You're in the wrong industry. Uh, so yeah, I think that's that's really the big challenge here with Palantir is just getting the understanding out there. Or I saw a chat yesterday on Twitter, and people were arguing about whether or not Palantir is a, is a data privacy problem, and a lot of people saying, hey, they don't hold any data. They don't own any data. They haven't got this great big pool of all the world's data on a server because think about it. Would the CIA let their data into a small little startup somewhere? No, of course not. They own it. They run it on their own servers or on dedicated outsourced servers. So the misunderstanding, I think, is easy whenever you create something new. You know, I, I read the other day, I was Googling um, Amazon and I looked at some old articles, 2005 or something like that. And the article was something like, Walmart is going to kill Amazon. <laughs> because people just didn't understand what they were doing. And they just said, it's crazy what you're doing. Like, this will never work. And, and Walmart's going online and they will just destroy you. And obviously that hasn't quite happened. But, you know, it's it's... Changing people's perceptions takes a lot of time. No, I, I agree. And, and we can kind of dovetail into another piece that we've seen this week happen for those who are following, at least on Twitter, is the top 10 owners of Palantir Technologies from a hedge fund perspective, eight out of 10 have increased their ownership quite some bit. Overall institutional ownership in the last, I want to say, six months has gone from less than 20% uh, or 23%, somewhere in there, to now 32%. So, and a lot of it is actually not new hedge funds. It's the people that were actually already invested in Palantir increasing their stake, right? So what can we deduce from that? Well, are they understanding the company better? Are they starting to understand the vision and possibilities and have a more of an imagination 
than what they're looking at and taking at face value of 30% growth for the next five years. And just really having two products, Gotham and Foundry. I think this is one of my favorite parts about Palantir and investing in technology stocks in general is you have to have an imagination to invest in growth to be successful, in my opinion. NVIDIA is a great example. My, I think it's still my number one holding. That and Trade Desk keep fighting each other out with whoever whoever's tops for the week. But, you know, Jensen Wong and what he has envisioned with AI, it is a software company. That is a compute as a platform software company. I do know they make the hardware and everything else. But when we look 10, 15 years from now, it is a software company that is revolutionizing compute as a platform. And I did a video back on their first GTC conference of the year in April. And they showed so much that was going to happen. And the first thing they showed was the Omniverse. And I'm like, this, this, is, this is the metaverse for the business. And they already have use cases and customers signed up. Yes, there's not a lot of revenue here, but you have me sold. When you can show a business case, which actually one of their customers is BMW, and they saved 30% of their costs of building new factories globally, analysts weren't looking at that. And even they actually, the price declined during that time when that conference happened, they weren't looking at all the other things like natural language processing with how they were able to get 95% adaption, adoption corrected with language translations for, from Japanese to English and other languages and AI with having conversational AI and and that being part of our future. Now you fast forward six months later and on this GTC conference, they got a little Jensen Wong avatar who literally is having a conversation with three data scientists and answering questions like you're talking to a person. So I just think that so many analysts, investors in the market, especially when you look at the media, lack imagination And that's where you will miss some of the biggest multi-baggers if you can't just think about what what could be. What are your thoughts? I think you make a really great point, Dominic, in that most software is an expense item to companies. So enterprises pay a lot of money for all sorts of software. They have to have it, otherwise the lights go out. There are very, very few services that they pay for actually make the money and if you have a business where you provide more value to your customer than they pay you you're onto a winner and if you look at the long-term spend of uh, palantir's customers who spends the most the oldest customers and they spend more and more each year and that's because they know if i give these guys an extra five million i'll save an extra 20 or something like that and i think that's very unique and you know we everybody has to use i don't know microsoft office or whatever it is but it's sort of like yeah it provides value obviously it's a good platform it's you know it it works but it doesn't give you real dollars it's very hard to measure what that output is whereas if you can optimize your back end your supply chain your cash flow whatever it is or Do they know your client processing for like 30 million banking customers? And you can therefore probably get rid of most of your compliance team. That stuff really saves you money. And I think that is, to me, when I read about that, I was like, that's very unique. That's very, very, very interesting here. So, And you don't even work in software sales and you understand this. See, uh, this is is something I share with, with some of my engineering friends of the ability to quantify software and quantify results makes it so much easier to get a PO from a CFO and CEO when you can quantifiably back it up and say, we helped Airbus save X amount of million dollars just because we found out they were overweighted on their fueling, right? You think about, and this is something you you reminded me of earlier, that data is the new oil. It is the new currency. And Palantir is the refinery for that currency And if you can actually generate revenue from a software, you will now, you will be able to not only get a customer, 
but expand on a customer and on an industry because what you've created now is a competitive moat and 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 a ability to grab other people's attention in different industries because if mercedes has saved x amount of dollars on their ev or whatever it may be right take any industry you want do you not think their competitors are gonna be like what the heck happened where did mercedes come from or you know we just saw the spac investment with birds i saw that and i was like oh man that would be so cool make sure to save money on where all those devices are they can get data intelligence on on you know making i don't know if the palantir doesn't actually capture the data so i guess they wouldn't get data on customer behavior but but birds would birds would get data on on where people are going frequently and 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 being able to sell that data and optimize their business with Gotham and Foundry on IoT and edge computing and Apollo. You know, you look at, we know for, what are some things we know for a fact, Felix? We know that 50% of data will be at the edge by 2025. We, we Gartner says it, we, we know that edge computing serverless is happening. So when you look at that and you look at that data also will grow 10x within the next 10 years or more, I want to be involved in stocks that are, are are making data more usable, making it more profitable, and are able to consume it in a way that makes it easier for businesses and consumers. And so I think that, you know, Palantir is just one of the companies that does this and does it very well. So I know we're coming up on time. Maybe we can just I think a good way to wrap this all up. I know we were going to talk about other stocks, but we'll save we'll save that for another episode because I could do this all day long. And I know we went over the hour that I said this would be. Let's score Palantir together on my new score list. And I will share my screen here. So this is something I'm still tweaking with. I call it the world changer stock checklist. I want to invest in companies that I believe will change the world we live in and will impact the world globally and how we live from a consumer and enterprise perspective. So you can see here on the left, I also have some quantifiable metrics I'm I'm tweaking to think about putting in this more, it was more a qualitative checklist, but now I'm thinking about putting some more quantitative data with it. And NVIDIA was my first go at it. So we're going to start here and we're going to just go on the qualitative side. So top dog, first mover advantage, uh, and five is the highest score you can get in emerging important industry. So I give it a five. What what do you give it here? Five being the highest. I think there isn't really anybody out there who does it much better. So yeah, I I, I would be with you on that. Okay. So you're going to give it a five too. Are they disrupting an industry or solving new problems? I also give that a five. Yes, very much so. Five for me too. Okay. Does the customer have a large TAM? I would definitely say five for myself. Absolutely. And I always say that. I always look for 20 to 100 times TAM is kind of what you want to compare to to revenue. Okay. And are they solving global problems? I would also say five. I think that's a fairly easy yes. Yep. Are they challenging the status quo? Yep. Possibly too much at times. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yes. I still okay. with you on that. Yep. And then company has sustainable and competitive advantage via superior tech, patents, moat, or brand loyalty. Most definitely. So I think you would agree with that, right? I would agree with you on that. Yes. Does the stock have past price depreciation for the last three years? This is where it gets its first ding. It has not been public for the last three years. So I gave it a three because it's only been public one year, but it has beat the market for their first year being public. So what would you score it from one to five? And you can take off more more Uh, than... than No, I appreciate that. I mean, it's, it's done actually very, very well if you bought this at the IPO level. But as you say, there isn't very much data out here. So that's always a challenge for me. So I would probably give that a two okay. just because you lack you lack a long-term record. That's very fair. Is revenue growing over 25% annually for the last three years? I think if we look back at the numbers, we can even still say from the financials that that would be a yes, correct? 
absolutely it's 40 percent the last two years so it, it's yeah it'll definitely be a, a yes to that are the gross margins over 50 percent, and do they have a path over 70 yes they're actually 80 percent. absolutely yeah. Is the company a large cap, medium cap, or small cap? Now, this scoring I actually have for a penalty because one of the things in getting a multi-bagger for a world changer is getting in at a small cap valuation because it's easier to grow. Mm. So I actually did give it a one because, or actually I think I know I gave it a two because it's it's a $45 billion market cap and it's still a large yeah, cap. Sort of- a smallish large cap, basically, right? Yes, yes, exactly. So whereas NVIDIA got a one because it's a mega cap, I gave I gave Palantir a two. What would you give Palantir? Uh, so if the mega caps are one, then that would be a two, yeah. Because it isn't, it isn't you know, NVIDIA created like $300 billion uh, of, of market cap in the last three months yes, or something. Yes, correct, so different, correct. Different. Is the company profitable and do they have a clear path to profitability? So I gave it a four. Because even though it's not a quote-unquote PE profitable company, they are They are generating free cash flow and doubling that. And the only reason they don't have a positive PE is because of the stock-based compensation that they're choosing to do. So I gave it a four, but I would love to hear your score on this one. This one's definitely one of, of debate. Yeah, I, I can see you have another metric for free cash flow in there. So I would not really have that part of that conversation. They are not profitable. It doesn't seem to be the core focus, I think, of what they're doing. So I would give that uh, a two and a half or a three. Okay, so we'll we'll, we'll give it a, a two uh, two and a half. Okay. Does the company have zero debt? I believe they have zero debt now. Correct. Zero debt. Yep, okay. Does the company have a current value over two? Uh, I believe their current value is three. I know it's over two. You can oh, check I'm real quick. Take your word on that one. If you want to check me, you can. I would encourage you to fact check me no, here. No, I, I'm sure you're right. All right. All right. So we got that. Is the company generating free cash flow? Most definitely. Is the company... Yeah, very healthily. Uh, is the company spending continuously on R&D and building out optionality? I mean, I think we answered that very much so between yes. not only their R&D, but the SPAC investments. Now, does the company exactly. have the SPACs a... kind of R&D too. Yes. Does the company have an operating margin over 35%? Uh, I want to say the last I saw was 34, so I gave it a four. Have you seen... Um, operating income margin is, is negative hugely oh because of the stock-based compensation so then we got to give it a one that's right it's 95 something like that that's why that's right i wonder what it would be if we didn't have the stock-based compensation but yes you're right you can't avoid that we have to yeah good management smart financial backing and proven ceo and founder led i gave that a five what what would you give that okay I would give that a five also because management and founders have a lot of large stake, which I like and grow stocks. Okay. Has the CEO been with the company 10 plus years since founding? Yes. Yes. Does the leadership team comp- compensation align with shareholders? Ooh, we're going to have to ding that one. Yeah. I, I'd give that a one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he, he did get a billion dollars last year. <laughs> so he earned it, yeah. but it does not align with shareholders. Does the company have high insider ownership? I would say yes. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Did you give it a five or a four? I, I gave it a five. A five. No, that's pretty, okay. pretty solid ownership. And then the CEO, same thing. He has, Carp has a lot of shares. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, does the CEO have a long-term vision or view of the company? I, I, I think we don't even know the full vision, but I, I think I would give him a five on that. I think they... They're playing chess while we're playing checkers. I think if we knew the madness that was going on in this head, I think we'd be very worried. Yes. Can the company add new revenue streams and mutate into a completely different company? I would say yes. I give that a five. I I think the fact they're coming up with these products per industry, absolutely. Yes, I think so too. Okay. Does the company have a reoccurring revenue model? I, I would say... I mean, essentially SaaS, essentially, with their way their contract is. Yeah. So would you give it a four or five? 
I think looking at the stickiness of customers and that they spend more each year, I'd give it a five. I think it's okay. basically a subscription model. Does the company have high net revenue retention? We don't really know, but we see them expanding their customer spend. So I'm going to give it a four. Yeah, would you... and given that they are creating good free cash flow as well, I would sort of, yeah, I'd give that. So what you you mean, are they re- able to retur- retain? Are they, are they retaining customers revenue? and are they spending more every year? Yes, I, I, there was a really good paper by, I think, Jeffries out about three or six months ago, which questioned all of their customers. And that was very much the statement. Okay, so we'll put a five there. Does the company have a high internal employee satisfaction and support? I gave it a four. You could maybe even give it a three because it did recently drop from 84% to 65% on cart, but it still has a 4.0 star rating on Glassdoor. So what, what would you categorize that? To me, I tend to on the side of caution because we don't always know the full picture because it's internal. So I'd, I'd give that a three to be a bit cautious. Okay. And does the company have a strong brand appeal and awareness? I'm going to say two or three because a lot of, I'm going to have to go with two because if you were to ask people on the street, like what is Palantir? I don't think most people would say that. And they only have 200. I, I think I'm, yeah, what would you, you do? on that? People either love it or hate it, and a lot of people don't understand it or are not aware of it. So I think a two would be fair. Okay. Is the company considered overvalued by analysts? Yes, they do. And I want them, just so you know, like I want them to consider it overvalued because that means I have a chance for a multi-bagger capability because they don't understand this stock. Is the company playing in a future mega trend and current a mega trend in society via AI, cloud, genomics, et cetera? Yes, all of that. Yes. Will this company and what it's trying to achieve keep me interested in the long term? And that's a hell yes. A five for me. Would yeah. you give that a five okay, or a four you for yourself? I, I give that a five too. I okay. So now let's see what the score is. So we add all that up and divide it by 150 is the max points that you can get. So let's see okay. here. So we have... 128.5 out of 150 for you. Getting an 85.67% rating, which is extremely high. My highest I've ever given was NVIDIA at 87. So let's see here. We're going to see what I gave it. And I, this is a scoring it for the first time in over six months. We'll see what my score is here. 131 I gave it. So it looks like this might tie or beat 87.3 and NVIDIA was 87 even. Yeah. Oh, 87.33. Both of them 87.33. Okay. So we have a tie. So Palantir is up there with NVIDIA. That's a great way to end this episode. And you also have it extremely high as well. So I think this would be fun to definitely do this on some other stocks together and maybe we'll have yeah, some absolutely. live stream it. Absolutely. That'd, that'd be cool. I mean, there are lots of, of metrics um, that, that you can, you can use. And I think you used a lot of interesting factors, there, especially for like growth companies where we don't have a lot of like traditional metrics. I think it's an interesting way to look at it. Uh, that doesn't mean people should run out and buy it tomorrow. Of course, there are significant risks with this stock and any stock. I think that's always important to, appreciate that and to diversify sensibly but uh, i i like the technology i like the technology more than its present financial performance but that's the the nature of a growth stock right you know if you wait till it has the numbers you like it's no longer a growth stock so that's kind of always the uh the thing to balance out is that's uh, so well said felix what risk Uh, we want to take we want to beat product fit and get in before product fit happens And we also want to invest in people, right? At the end of the day, we're investing in not only the product, but the people behind the company and the culture. And I think we both agree that they have something special there. So this was a blast. I enjoyed this thoroughly. I know my listeners uh, will as well. So where can they follow you on YouTube and where can they sign up for your service? I want to make sure to give you a plug here. 
Uh, Dominic, it's very kind of you. I really enjoyed this too. Lovely chat. Uh, really, really great. We could we could do this. You can check me out on YouTube, Felix and Friends. Just search that. You'll you'll find it. If you want to improve your investment, I've got tons of free courses, tons of free resources at goatacademy.org. That's O-R-G. So check that out and make sure you keep following Dominic. I think you've also got some exciting stuff planned there. We're talking about it just before the call started. So I truly appreciate it, Dominic. Thank you so much for having me. And I look forward to doing this again sometime. Thank you again, Felix. I had fun. So once again, thanks for listening in to Dominating Your Investments. And remember, it's never too late to start. So I hope this helps you get some encouragement on how to look at a company from a qualitative and quantitative perspective. Um, And if you have any questions, feel free to hit me up on Twitter uh, at DominicRinaldi9 and give me a follow and look forward to uh, providing more content like this uh, on my podcast. Now for the disclaimer, dominating your investment is for entertainment and educational purposes only. This should not be taken as financial advice and is just that of my opinion on investing. If you found that informational helpful and entertaining in today's interview, you can also give me a follow at DominicRinaldi9. Thank you again for listening and remember, it's never too late to start dominating your investments.